fellowship. Let's um, open up another word of prayer and, and uh, we'll get started. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening to study your word together. Lord, I pray that um, as we study that your word would have its way in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be able to to teach and express uh, correctly um, what it is you have preserved for us as believers, and that we would we would hunger and thirst for you, to know you, to know you through your word and through your spirit, what it is that you have for us. Lead us and guide us in our conversation tonight. And so we, we pray these things and thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, a couple of things we want to mention before we get started. Next Wednesday is April 5th. Um, we will be doing a Passover Seder in that room over on the other side of that wall next Wednesday night. Um, so if you can come early to help set up, that would be wonderful. I really appreciate anybody that's able to do that. Um, uh uh, Pastor Zeke has been organizing teams, so if you could just let him know that, that uh, you're able to help, I know he would really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, that's going to be next Wednesday, 6.45, normal time. And then Friday night, oh, is that what he said, Sunday morning, 6.30? Well, I guess it's 6.30 then. I guess I'll be here at 6.30. So, um, and... Then on Friday night is Good Friday, so we will have a Good Friday service on Friday night as well, so I'd like to invite you out for that. Um, and it, it, it won't be long, but it will be contemplative. We usually go about, you know, 45 minutes or so, um, and it'll be, you know, a time to really just stop, think, and meditate on, on the crucifixion. And um, so I thought 645, but pay attention to, like, Sunday morning and emails and Facebook and website and all that. I think it's 6:45. I thought I was trying to keep everything like at the 6:45 time so people didn't have to figure out another time. Um, I wouldn't mind if it was a few minutes earlier, but um, but yeah. So we're gonna go with 6:45 for the moment and stay tuned. But check check out the website. It'll be on the website. It'll be on Facebook. It'll, we'll we'll post it up and um, it'll be in the bulletin and everything. All right. So, we should finish up chapter 8 tonight, um, <clears throat> which has been uh, the discussion on the, the specifically on the gift of tongues, and there we go. Um, so, and we're, we're going through the, you know, the studying the gifts of the Spirit, the Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts by Sam Storms, and uh, this is interesting because tonight we're going to hear some of his testimony, that's how we're going to finish up tonight, some of his testimony, because he... He comes from a cessationist background, long, deep uh, theological tradition and a cessationist background. Now, I just threw out a word there. So for uh, 36 points, what is a cessationist? Um so they wouldn't define it as the spirit leaving the world. They would define it as the manifestation gifts of the spirit. They, the cessationist absolutely believes the Holy Spirit's in the world. That that's how we get saved. That we, we got to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Um, that you know the Holy Spirit's moving and working. They just don't believe that the, the revelatory manifestation gifts 
um, i.e. 1 Corinthians 12 that we're studying, are um, part of, uh, they, they believe they ceased at when the apostles, the ministry of the original apostles ceased. So that would be a little a little more clear because the cessationists would, would, would deeply disagree that the Spirit's not here. They would they, they believe the Spirit's here. Um, so I'm going to use another word tonight that would be the opposite of a cessationist, the opposite of the theology of cessationist. Does anybody know what that's called? It's interesting because I've heard cessationists a bunch, but you don't usually hear the other word. So I'm going to throw that out. So this one's going to be worth 48 points. Very good. Okay, and you get a bonus five because you were even before I even got it out. So that's a bonus five on that. Oh, did you say a realist? <laughs> I really like that answer, but that one was the correct one, theologically correct. So, hey, guys, y'all doing good? All right, so we're going through this book through what? Uh, a continuationist, uh, continuationism versus cessationism. Yeah, so a cessationist versus a continuationist. And we're we're going to see these two come into play in some of our texts tonight. Um, so everything tonight is going to be out of the, the Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. That's all my quotes are coming from there. In the end, we're going to hear his testimony, story, love stories. But there is one small section. I'm not going to go deep into it, but there is one small section, and I'll let you all know when I get there. But we're going to kind of depart from the text a little bit. I'm going to get into some of the teachings from Michael Heiser. Um, and you'll, you'll see it when we get there that, that I think really helped understand what does it mean that the um, tongues is a sign gift. What does that mean that it's a sign? So we're going to talk uh, what that means, and, and he's got some uh, unique response to that. We, we went over that in, a, in an answer in a Q&A session that wasn't recorded, so um, you actually got more detail then you'll get tonight. But tonight, if you have more questions, you can ask me later. All right, so all the, the scriptures I'm going to use are going to be right out of ESV. I'm quoting from the ESV, unless it says otherwise. So let's just jump right in. We're in chapter 8. What is the gift of tongues? So what is it? So what we've talked about so far um, is that the gift of tongues, a lot of people say, well, the tongues were evangelistic. And the response to that is no. They're not primarily evangelistic. Can God use them evangelistically? Absolutely. God will use anything and everything to win the hearts. Of, I would say anything and everything. He will use a, a, a multiplicity of ways in which he wins the heart of people. But that's not the primary purpose of the gift of tongues. Um, uh, the, the primary means of winning people is the preach word. That's the primary. How will someone know unless someone goes and tells? You know, and Romans 10 really develops out that theme. You know, that uses the scripture that says um, uh, how, um, uh, uh, um, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, just went out of my head. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That means you're, that means what? You're traveling, you're going, and you're telling. Uh, all right. So, number two, why is tongue speech so rare in the other epistles? In other words, you don't see Paul teaching about it anywhere else but in Corinthians, for, you know, right here in these three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Why is it so rare? Why don't we see it? Well, look, it's because that's where it needed to be addressed. We talked about that. You also don't see Paul teach about communion anywhere else. We don't think communion's unimportant just because Paul doesn't teach it in every single letter. Yeah, and it's that that's where it needs to be addressed. And in fact, they were encouraged to copy the letters and share them among the church so that all would have. That's why we have the New Testament. It's exactly why we have it, because they saw how important it was for it to be copied and shared. And we have literally 
thousands of copies of it today. Thousands upon there's like five thousand copies in the Greek. And when you add all the copies in the other languages it was put in, we have something like 20,000 copies uh, of various parts of the apostolic writings so that we can put back together. In fact, the early church fathers, I know this isn't about, you know, how did scripture get put together, but the early church fathers quoted from the letter so much. We have 80,000 quotes from the early church fathers for which we can reconstruct the entire corpus of the apostolic writings save but a few but a small very small handful of verses just from them quoting it back and forth to one another so um anyway there we go uh what is the nature of tongues and i I think this is fascinating understanding this the holy spirit is literally manifesting through the human spirit and it's mysterious it's it's not understood by our minds but it is praise and prayer directly to and with god no one understands. That's the nature of it. So the only way one understands is if the Holy Spirit also manifests to someone else what it means, other than if it were a, a human language, then someone may understand it because it was a human language, in which case the Holy Spirit's still doing the directing because the Holy Spirit intended for that person to hear that message in their language. All right, so is, it, is self-edification okay? So, you know, some people say, well, you know, tongues is all for self-edification, and we know we don't want to build up self. No, we don't want to build up selfishness, okay? We don't want to build up self-centeredness. We do want self-edification. It's called Bible study. It's called prayer. It's called listening to sermons. It's called reading books. It's, be, it's called being more mature, being more spiritually uh, sensitive, expanding our understanding, intensifying our zeal. All of this is important. Uh, that we build ourselves up in our most holy faith, Paul says. All right. Um, so is ecstasy a part of tongue speech? And this is, uh, oops, I passed it. This is really because some English trans, two things, we get, uh, we get a kind of a not really good translation in some English translations that talk about, you know, ecstasy, um, meaning that, that, you know, when a, when a, uh, um, a, a, um, an unclean spirit takes over someone's body and they lose control. They, they um, are acting in a way in which that spirit is controlling them. The Holy Spirit will never do that uh, uh, in, in a person's life, will never manifest that. Uh, I love the, the saying that I heard someone say one time. I wish I could remember who it was, but, but he said the Holy Spirit is an officer and a gentleman. He will never force an individual, um, but there is great blessing when we obey. Um, all right, so um, do all speak in tongues? And so we, we looked at this last week. Um, Paul desired that we all would. Paul seems to indicate there is the potential that all can or may. Paul makes a distinction between um, manifesting the gift of tongues in public versus um, a private devotional spiritual language. Um, he, he clearly says not all will um, um, manifest in a public, um, but he seems to indicate that the gift is universally available. Obviously, not everyone does. The the question in my heart really comes down to, and I, I like Dr. Storms really pointed this out, is how many people actually desire? Or how many people go, well, that's, you know, God, I don't really want that gift from you. Oh, yeah, I know it's a gift you have, but that's a weird one. Can I have a different gift? And so, so many people don't simply because it's uncomfortable. 
uh, yeah, they don't want to be thought to be weird. They, uh, they had a bad experience. Um, they, you know, they've been around people who make fun of it. And so, um, so, so therefore, a lot of people aren't asking and seeking. God's not going, for the most part, God's not going to put something on you. You're not asking or seeking. Um, all right. So what about Paul's personal life? Paul was profoundly grateful that his devotional life was filled with praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues. Yet, he said, when I'm in a church, when we're gathered together with believers, we need to put ourselves aside. And that's really what Paul's all about in, in, in teaching Corinthians. Listen, it's not about you looking spiritual. It's about you lifting your brother and sister up. So find the way for do something that's for the common good to lift one another up. Um, all right, so what are we going to talk about tonight? Our tongues a sign. Our tongues a sign. Because Paul uses the scripture, and we'll see what that scripture is. Tongues are a sign for the unbeliever. What in the world does that mean? Um, we're going to talk about tongues in the church. We've talked about it quite a bit, so I'm just going to hit some highlights on it. I'm not going to, I'm going to just going to run across the top of that one. Um, that first one, our tongues a sign, we'll spend a little bit of extra time in there because I'm going to bring in some material outside of the text tonight for that. And then we're going to talk about tonight, what about corporate singing in the spirit? And we'll see how many people have, are familiar with what that is. So we'll, and again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We're just going to touch it a little bit because I want to really get to Dr. Storm's testimony and and uh, I like that, that, that how he shares his testimony, his experience, what he's been through. And that will really kind of give us a personal way to, to end the evening um, in, in discussing it. We have, you know, have some good time uh, talking about it in the Q&A. And then we're going to spend some time praying together afterwards like, like we have been. All right. Everybody ready to get into this? Yes. I just talked about that. Literally just talked about that. That's a great question, though. It's a fantastic question. So, um, what? Oh, excuse me one second. I'm sorry. You guys won't see me do this, but I need to. Oh, no, that's okay. That's all right. We get it. it trust me. It's hard to get across Houston. So, I, at one point, I was literally working all the way up by Memorial City Mall, and I would have to get from Memorial City Mall over to here to teach on a Wednesday night. And there were a lot of times I literally came running in the door and just ran right here. <laughs> and then just really kind of picked up mid-sentence. So it's fine with me. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, so the question is, uh, back to what we were talking about a minute ago, why is it, in fact, I'll just go back to the slide. That'll be the easiest way to do it. If I can find it, there we go. Why is tongue speech so rare, if at all, in the other epistles? Okay, so the short answer is this. It's in the book of Corinthians because the Corinthians were the ones that needed to be addressed with it. They were the ones having an issue. What, what the letters do is Paul is writing a letter to a specific congregation to deal with specific issues. That's what his epistles are. His epistles aren't, hey, let me tell you everything you need to know about walking as a believer all in one place. Okay? He's dealing with specific issues. For instance, in Corinthians, as we mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 11 is the only time he brings up communion. 
do we say we're not going to have communion because he doesn't tell the the Ephesians, he doesn't tell the Colossians, he doesn't tell the Galatians, and does you know that hey guys you need to know about communion. No, they already knew it, they already understand it. It was the Corinthians who had to be instructed with it. Come on in, guys. Um, do what? Oh, gotcha. Um, it was the Corinthians that needed to be instructed in it, so that's why we have it in the letter. And so, what was the result of that? The result was that um, uh, these letters were copied and Paul and uh, and 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 passed out so that everyone would have a copy of the instructions that were given to each of them. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. Mixed congregations, yeah. Most of most of what he's speaking to is mixed congregations, yeah. So, but the answer as to why you don't see it in the other epistles is that's not what he's writing to. Exactly, exactly. All right, he was setting things in order. So, our tongues. This is where we're going tonight. Our tongues assigned, tongues in the church. What about corporate singing in the spirit? My experience with tongues. All right, so are tongues a sign? Why would we ask that question? Here it is, 1 Corinthians 14. You can turn in your Bibles if you want to read along, or you could just look at the screen. This is what it says. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean? What does that verse mean? What is he talking about here? How do we make sense of this verse? All right. So now let's remember something. What is Paul's main concern? We keep coming back to over and over, especially as we get into 1 Corinthians 14. His main concern is this, is that instruction, encouragement, edification of the entire body is going on when the body has gathered for the purpose of public assembly. When the body's gathered for the purpose of public assembly, what we need more than anything else is that the body is encouraged. It's edified. It's built up. It's instructed. This is what we need. So that's his main concern, right? So here we go in verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let things be done for building up edification for building up the body okay this is this is his heart when the body's together we need body ministry all right so paul's writing to the corinthian church why because they needed to be instructed in orderly public uh worship the assembling that's why we have the letter like i've said before i love the fact that the corinthians were just like us needing correction and instruction they were human beings who had to be instructed it is likely that they were genuinely manifesting empowered tongues and prophecies. It is likely this was truly the gift of the Holy Spirit operating in them. It just wasn't done in order. And we need to understand that. They weren't 
manifesting something that was not from the Holy Spirit. They just weren't doing it in a way that the Holy Spirit intended to do in that setting. You see the difference? Okay? Big, important difference. So, the environment is chaotic and confusing. Why? Because they were immature in what they were doing. They hadn't come to maturity in how to operate in what God has given them. Which really fascinates me. This is a little bunny trail here. But really fascinates me. Why? Because God was more interested that the believers would have everything that, they, that he had for them even before they even knew how to walk in it maturely. The Holy Spirit didn't go, well, I'm going to pour out my gifts on them once they get to a certain level of maturity. And once they're there and they can handle it, then I'll pour out on them. The Holy Spirit didn't do that. The Holy Spirit just poured out on them and said, now figure out how to walk in it. But that's not what we do. What we do is, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Wait till you get mature. And then ask God, hmm, why do we have it backwards? What are we afraid of? Are we afraid that God won't bring us to a place of order? Are we afraid of what we're going to look like? Anyway, that's a bunny path. Put that in the back there. All right, so the lack of concern that the body as a whole be instructed and edified demonstrate what? There's a certain immaturity, which means what? They're not living in love with one another. That's why right in the middle of all this, Paul writes an entire chapter on love. That's why he put it in there. The problem, guys, isn't the gifting of the Spirit. You've got that. The problem is you haven't figured out how to love one another. That's what you haven't figured out. So we want you to do the gifting, but we want you to do it while you're loving one another. That would be cool, guys. Can we learn to do that? That's what Paul's writing to him. All right. So, into this environment, Paul's writing, is the proverbial unbeliever. An unbeliever walks into the middle of this. How are tongues a sign to this unbeliever when he walks into the middle of this? All right? How does that happen? So, there's two paths of interpretation that people will take. There is the cessationist path and the continuationist path. Yeah, see, there you go. There's your 58 points or whatever it was. Um, so the, 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 you have the path of continuation, you have a continuationist, and you have a cessationist. So these are two different ways of looking at this passage. So we're going to look at both, um, and, uh, and then I'm going to add to it afterwards some, some a bit of, of Heiser to help us expand even, even a little bit larger what I think God's doing here. So both paths need to understand something. Paul uses a scripture from Isaiah, which is a judgment warning. Okay, there's this judgment warning Paul quotes out of Isaiah. And so either path you take, you have to bring in, you got to understand what's going on in Isaiah. Okay, so let's go look at what Paul uses, but we'll look at it in Isaiah. And this is the quote from Isaiah. This is chapter 28, verse 11. Isaiah said this, he says, for by people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. And, um, and so what, what Isaiah is doing is actually drawing from a prophecy in Deuteronomy. Something that Moses had warned the people way back uh, in the beginning um, in Deuteronomy. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back and see where, what is Isaiah referring to back in Deuteronomy, the, the root of this prophecy. And this is, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. This is in chapter 8, verse 49. It says this, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. 
from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. What, what the context is, is like, look, if you don't follow me and you don't obey me, you don't follow my ways in order to receive the blessing. In other words, if you aren't acting in faith, receiving the blessing that I'm giving you, demonstrated by the fact that you're living opposed to my word, you're embracing the, that which is around you, then you are going to be judged. And that judgment is going to come from a nation that speaks a foreign tongue, another tongue, a tongue you don't understand. And they're going to come in, and, and that will be a sign of your disobedience. That will be a sign of your judgment. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah comes to the eighth, in the 8th century. Um, punishment was going to come because of the, the covenant disobedience from a foreign nation. Uh, and in the 8th century... Uh, the Assyrians come into Israel, and they, the, ultimately the northern kingdom, the, the northern ten tribes, are, are carried off captive. And then the Assyrians come down to the southern kingdom and nearly take them out. Okay? And so it's a, it's a sign of judgment that's coming. All right? And so Paul, why is Paul drawing on this sign of judgment and making this parallel to tongues? You know, what, what's going on here? So... Similarly, Jeremiah draws from this same Deuteronomy passage. So this is something that's in the scriptures more than one time. This is a, this is a sign. What, what it, here it is in the 5th century um, uh, when Jeremiah is referring to it. It says, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Again, he's referring back to, look, he's, he's, he's carrying out what he said he was going to do in Deuteronomy. God keeps his promises. Here it's happening. So, if I'm going to follow the cessationist path, here's how the argue would, argument would go. Knowing this background, if we understand these texts, this is what the cessationist would, would want to argue. Since, oops, sorry, I really somehow went in a wrong place. Okay, here's what the cessationists want to argue. Since unintelligible language is a sign of judgment, and since uninterpreted tongues is a type of unintelligible language, everybody follow me? If I'm standing up and I'm speaking in tongues and nobody's interpreted, that's an unintelligible language. And since an unintelligible language is a sign of judgment, and since many of the first century Jews, first century A.D. Jews, were unbelieving, they weren't believing, they weren't following, they weren't accepting, then, therefore, uninterpreted tongues is primarily given as a first century sign against Israel for rejecting her Messiah. An attempt to shock them into repentance and faith. And so this would be the cessationist argument. The cessationist who would want to say, tongues are not for today. The Holy Spirit stopped doing it. Why? Well, it doesn't need to do it anymore. Israel's been rejected, and so we don't need this anymore because the sign has already come to fulfillment. It's a sign for unbelievers. They're unbelievers. They were rejected. We don't need it anymore. Therefore, the Holy Spirit doesn't do this. Everybody follow this argument. I'm not, I'm not, okay, we're going to look at a different argument, but that's the way a cessationist would come about. You also have to throw in... Uh, some you know dispensationalism you have to throw maybe even replacement theology some other things in there to get there all right thus 
Tongues are a sign of God's coming judgment to unbelievers. Furthermore, since Israel was judged in 70 AD, the sign is no longer needed, so we don't need tongues anymore. All right. Here's some problems with the argument. So, as you can figure, if I'm, I probably would have problems with it if I'm not a cessationist. So, all right, what, what, what might be some problems? Number one, why would Paul counsel against uninterpreted tongues when unbelievers are present if it was actually meant to be assigned to them? Why would he counsel against doing it if the purpose of it was to cause them to want to repent? Hmm. That would not make sense, would it? I mean, look, this is what he says, verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? And he's assuming no one's interpreting. So he's counseling against using it. How can its primary purpose be to warn them if we're not supposed to do it? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? (coughs) Shouldn't Paul be encouraging it? Listen, whenever unbelievers in, speak in tongues as much as you can so it convicts them and they come and it's a sign and they, they repent. So I think there's a bit of a problem here. But that's not the only problem. Here's some other things that Paul says. He says tongues are for the common good. Tongues edifies the believer in private prayer. Tongues, when used with interpretation, is a means of edifying the body. Um, and nowhere else in the scripture do tongues serve as a sign of judgment. So it seems a bit of a stretch to say its primary purpose and the only reason we needed it was a warning sign, but we don't need it anymore when we see all of the purposes Paul's given for it are everything but that. Everybody follow? Anybody not with me? Okay, so we still left with, um, so this is Dr. Storms. I'm quoting him right here. For for all these reasons, I conclude that the view that tongues is, is only or even primarily a sign of judgment on first century unbelieving Jews is unconvincing. And I, I totally agree with him. Um, all right. So Dr. Storms explains the continuation path of understanding. So I'm going to just quote from him on this. I think he does a really good job of giving the opposite argument word for word. So I'm just going to quote him directly. And so let's look at the opposite argument. So we're going to requote this Isaiah passage just to get it back in our head. And then so we, we're fresh with it. And then we'll go into the explanation. What did Isaiah say? For by people of strange lips, with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. So this is what Isaiah said, okay? And Paul's using this. All right, what's going on here? This is what Dr. Storm says. He says, listen, when God speaks to people in a language they cannot understand, it's a form of punishment for unbelief. Speaking to them in a language they can't understand, it's a form of punishment for unbelief. It signifies his anger incomprehensible speech will not guide or instruct or lead to faith and repentance, but only confuse and destroy. Thank you. So if, 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 if God, if, if signs was actually meant as a sign for a warning, a sign for judgment, all right, and, and it was actually signifying his anger, he's bringing about punishment, if that's actually what's going on, then it's not going to be meant to guide, it's not going to be meant to instruct, it's not going to be meant to lead to faith. All it's going to do is confuse and destroy. Right? Therefore, if outsiders or unbelievers come into your meeting, most likely out of spiritual curiosity, or perhaps even in the pursuit of the gospel, and you begin to speak that way, They won't be able to understand you're simply driving them away rather than drawing them in. Everybody follow. It's a bit nuanced, but it's hugely important. 
you will be giving a sign to them that is entirely wrong. Because their hardness of heart has not reached the point where they deserve severe sign of judgment. Okay? So look. If you look at tongues, it's used as a, as a warning sign for, for, hey, judgment's come. When Isaiah uses it, when Jeremiah's using it, they're not warning that it's coming. They're saying, it has come. This is what's going to happen. And so, therefore, um, if, that is, if that is one of the purposes and unbelievers are there, that's not what you want to communicate to unbelievers. You're not there to communicate judgment to unbelievers. You're there to communicate the gospel. So, therefore, say something they understand so they can hear the gospel. Does everybody get that? All right. So when you come together, if anyone speaks in a tongue, be sure there's an interpretation. Otherwise, the tongue speaker should be quiet in the church, right? That's what Paul says. Prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign of God's presence with believers. So Paul encourages its use when unbelievers are present in order that they may see this sign and thereby come to Christian faith. What happens I mean, I've seen it over and over and over again. Somebody who comes in, uh, and all of a sudden, somebody has a word. And, and, and uh, I, I mean, I, I remember one person telling me, you know, uh, they, they were walking out the door. They told me much later, somebody had come up to them and shared. This, they're, they're miracles that happened. Because this person told me stuff that there's no way they knew. No way they knew. One of the means that ended up being used to bring them to faith. All right. So. Do not permit uninterpreted tongue speech in church, for in doing so, you run the risk of communicating a negative sign to people that will only drive them away. And so that's, that's Dr. Storm's explanation. I, I like that. I like that. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to expand this concept of another way to see tongues as a sign. This is not to add a different interpretation. I'm just going to show you there's something bigger. Why? This, to me, is why the gift of tongues to begin with. I mean, doesn't it seem like kind of a weird gift? It's like the other ones, like my wisdom, knowledge, prophecy, I get all that. Why this speaking in the tongues of angels? You know, it's like, okay, Lord, why that? What, why would you come up with that, God? Okay? So, I mean, besides the fact that the things that it does, why would God need that to do those things? I would submit to you as something really, really cool going on through tongues that when you see it, you're like, oh, my goodness. You had to do it, God. All right? What is that? So, this is what I'm taking from Dr. Heiser's teaching. There's several really good books out there. The book Supernatural, we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, Unseen Realm really gets into it. Uh, Reversing Hermon, I believe, gets into it some more. So, you can go look those up and, and see it deeply. You can find He teaches on the Internet and uh, all, all kinds of places. You'll see it. Anyway. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to read Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. It says this. Now the whole earth had one, what? Language. And the same words. So there was a point in which the entire world all spoke the same language. Notice this, this, this pericope, this passage, this story starts off with referring to what? Tongues. Language. Okay? The whole world had one language. As, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, uh, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest 
we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, what's really important is to understand that last sentence right there. Why? Because God commanded Adam and Eve, you shall be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Then, after the flood, when Noah starts over with his family, twice in chapter 9, verse 7, verse 9, he repeats the command to Noah that he had given to Adam, and he says what? Spread out over the entire earth and take dominion. The command to mankind was to spread out and to be a kingdom of priests to God over the whole earth, to bring the kingdom of God to the whole earth. Do I make it a little more obvious. To bring the kingdom of God to the whole earth. That's what they were commanded to do. What did they just say? Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's stay right here together and not do exactly what God commanded to do. The first commandment he gave after the flood. You think it might have been an important time to listen to a commandment? Hmm. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have what? One language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. God's not saying this in that he's threatened by what man might accomplish. What he's talking about is their level of rebellion. This is only the beginning of their rebellion. This is only the beginning of it. God is not up there going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I don't know if I can handle man. (laughs) Verse 7. Come, let us go down there and what? Confuse their language. How is he going to make mankind obey his command even against their own will? By confusing their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and left them, and they left off building the city. What happened? They refused to obey God. God says, you, and they wanted to build a tower to get to heaven. God says, you wanted to build a tower to get up to where I am by disobeying me. I'm going to come down to where you are and have you obey me, even though you, dis, you have just rebelled. And he he. he confuses their languages and they disperse over all the earth just like he had commanded to adam just like he had commanded twice to noah and his family all right verse nine therefore its name was called what babel is that the right yeah because there was because there the lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth now there's something really key to understand about this passage here this was the third rebellion now, if you ask most Christians today, why is the world in the state that it's in, almost everybody would say, well, the Garden of Eden, right? If you were to go to a Second Temple Jew, a Second Temple Jew would have been any Jew in the first century at the time Peter, Paul, James, John, and Jesus were walking on the earth. And you would have asked them, what is the condition, what is the, the, the reason for the condition of mankind? They would have said, well, first you had the flood, I mean, first you had the garden, Rebellion number one, then you had the flood, corruption, rebellion number two, and then you had the Tower of Babel. They wouldn't have said one rebellion, they would have said three. And what was the result of the third rebellion? At the result of the third rebellion, God literally divorces himself from mankind. He says, I'm done with mankind, 
That's the third rebellion. I am done. And, and what does he do? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, tells us exactly what he does. The Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. How did he divide mankind? Confused their languages. Confused their languages. And he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And Meaning what? He literally appointed divine um, uh, powers, principalities, um, council members uh, over the nations. And their purpose was to lead mankind back to him. Now, they end up rebelling as well. This is Psalm 82. You can go look it up later. Like I said, I'm only going to hit the highlights tonight. Okay, but it's what Paul refers to when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, against rulers. He also calls them thrones. He calls them kings. He calls them lords. Um, uh, Daniel refers to them like the prince of Persia. And he's talking about these spiritual beings who are over geographical regions on the earth who have led mankind into deep rebellion against God. And God, that way that that began was the confusion of languages. That's the point at which mankind was divorced from God, right? All right, so what do we have here? Mankind is separated from God from one another. Mankind is divided all all over the earth in disobedience. And the primary sign was confused language. Hmm, sounds like Deuteronomy. That was going to happen to Israel. Hmm, the pattern repeats. Jeremiah, pattern repeats. Okay, how does God signify the breaking in of the kingdom of God on earth, making the way of the restoration back to the nations? Making the way of restoration to the nations back to God. How does God signify, what is the sign that God is now making a way for the nations back to him after judgment? When the day of Pentecost had arrived, uh, let's go 62 points right there. This is in Acts chapter 2. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every what? Nation under heaven. The one day in the entire Hebrew calendar when all the nations are represented and here in their presence is the one day the Holy Spirit falls, hey, and comes down on them and they begin to speak how? In tongues. Let me keep going. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in what? His own language. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome... 
both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. They were all amazed. They were perplexed. And they were saying to one another, what does this mean? Just like we ask, what does tongues mean? What does it mean? They're asking the same question. What does this mean? Verse 13, but others were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. I, okay, I, when you don't want to believe something, you just don't want to believe. Even your own ears. I have never, has anybody ever heard someone drunk actually speak more clear in another language? <laughs> I mean, come on. Anyway, just a bit of credulity there. All right, so, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, I do want to point out something. Why would they be calling them drunk? Not just because they're hearing tongues, but because they're acting in a way filled with the Spirit that may not have been respectable hmm. and what do we say when we see some people praising the lord exuberantly and passionately do we get embarrassed by it oh they're just drunk oh they're just nonsense hmm. anyway that's not really the point let me keep going but this was what was uttered through the prophet joel and he begins to quote joel we're not going to do the whole prophecy we're just going to do the first verse and in the last days it shall be god declares that i will pour out my spirit where on all flesh all nations all people who had been divorced all flesh all nations all people in the last days what's happening the Spirit is being poured out. And what will happen? Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And I'm going to jump down to verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then we're going to jump over to Acts 17, verse 30, when Paul is talking to the Athenians. He says, listen, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, interestingly enough, if you go back and you study your Bible, and you were to turn to Acts chapter 10, which is called the Table of Nations, and you were to look that these were the nations that, that, that were believed that God divided into in Acts chapter, I mean, in Genesis chapter 10, where in Genesis chapter 11, at the, uh, in, during the, after the Tower of Babel, you go back a chapter, you say, these were all the nations. If you were to go back and to study that, and then if you were to turn over, just because you just are a person who likes to study, and you just happen to have a bug to say, hmm, I wonder all these nations, and you were to study where these people were, where they were from, in Acts chapter 2, you would, believe it or not, find this amazing correspondence to all the nations represented in Genesis 10, to all the nations represented in Acts chapter 2. It's not going to be a one-for-one one list. It's going to be region and area all represented. How did they get divided? God confused their language. How does he call them all back to repentance? He gives them a new language. It's a sign. In fact, I would say to you, God had to do it. Why? 
Because the tongues of Act 2 are assigned to the nations, God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. He he, He overlooks the nations no longer. It is now time for all people everywhere to repent. Now we're getting Isaiah. It is the great reversal of the judgment in Genesis 1 through 11. But we kind of think it's weird. We don't really want that, God. People look strange when they do that. Hmm. See what happens when we study our Bible? All right. So tongues are a sign. We've covered point one. I've got three more points to cover. (laughs) I'll do it at the end. When we're over, we'll do Q&A. Yeah, so write it down. I want the question. Yeah, yeah, bring it up. All right. So tongues in the church. What what about tongues in the church? And again, we've talked about this quite a bit. I'm not going to to belabor it. I'm just going to hit a few highlights. Um, And I'm going to, quoting from Dr. Storms here, uh, just to, uh, he's got a really succinct way of putting it. It would appear that some of the Corinthian believers had made two mistakes in their exercise of the gift. They made two mistakes, okay? What is Paul trying to do? Stop it? No. He wants them to continue it. He just wants them to do it right. And there were two There were two problems. He's just trying to address these two problems. What's problem number one? First, they had overemphasized its importance, thinking that those who exercised a gift so obviously supernatural must themselves be extraordinarily favored by God. Their childish immaturity led them to conclude that tongue speech, am I on the same page there? Tongue speech was evidence of a transcendent and superior spirituality. Spirituality. What was it? Spiritual pride. They're acting in spiritual pride, and as a result, they're not acting in love. They're acting in maturity, and as a result, the body is being torn down rather than built up. They're saying, look at me, look at, the, look at this gift that I have, aren't I special? Rather than saying, you're special by, before God, how can I build you up? And this is what Paul's addressing. This is number one. All right, but what's the second thing? The second thing is they were employing, indeed flaunting, their tongue speech in public assembly without interpretation. And what was his response to such abuse? It was not to ban it. He said, do not forbid. Sinful, selfish abuse does not nullify the reality of the divine gift. The fact that flesh, and the fact that we allow our flesh to enter into the uh, uh, um, the Holy Spirit working in us doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not working. It means we're not yet sanctified. I, I want to put it a different way. How many of us here, in the day we got saved, we walked into the church and we were just 100% perfectly sanctified and had it all right? Any volunteers? <laughs> Please stand over there. Lightning strikes in that spot. <laughs> No, we enter in with all our baggage, and then we walk this thing out knowing that who shall bring a charge against us? It is God who justifies. And he begins to work sanctification in our lives. And we have that grace on each other, and we lift one another up, and we say, hey, that's selfish. Don't do that. We don't say, stop lacking in the spirit. We say, stop being selfish. His recommendation was not rejection, it was correction. 
So Paul's correction was twofold. How did he correct? Number one, he said what? Allow and encourage public speaking in tongues with interpretation. He says what? Pray that you would have a tongue and that you would interpret so that you can share it with the body, so that you could be loving towards others, so that the Holy Spirit can move in your midst. Pray for that. Earnestly desire it. Seek it. Follow the pattern set for prophecy. It's not, gonna, it's not, it's not, you don't, you don't, you're not controlling. You don't just get to stand up in the middle of everybody and interrupt. No, no. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. There'll be a time and a place. Find that time and a place. Let it be done decently with order. But pray that it happens. What does it do? It allows for orderly meeting. It allows for humility, self-control. There's no spirit of compulsion. And then we can judge that word together. Remember we were told to judge? We can judge it. What does it deal with? It deals with pride. It deals with disorder. It deals with any excuse that someone is compelled by the Spirit. It also deals with complaints of quenching the Spirit. See, I've heard both. I've heard people say, well, you're just trying to hold the Spirit down. And then I've heard somebody else say, "Uh, uh, well, you're just quenching the Spirit. You know, some people say, i compelled I had to do it. No, you didn't have to. There's a place. Let's judge it. Let's bring it about. Let's build up. Let's do it humbly. Let's love one another. Most of all, we want to encourage. We want to instruct. We want to edify. All right. Second thing he deals with is this. This is the second correction. What's the second correction? Allow and encourage private praying, singing, and praising in tongues. Do it. Do it frequently. Do it often. Let it be a part of your devotional life. Pray with tongues. Pray with your mind. Allow God to have that mysterious communication between you. Allow the Holy Spirit to manifest through your, whole, through your human spirit. That mysterious praise and prayer directly to God bypasses the mind, building up the inner man, he says. What does it lead to? Oops, sorry. It leads to maturing. It leads to increasing spiritual sensitivity. It leads to expanding understanding, intensifying zeal, and being a better member of the body of Christ, of Christ's body. Amen? So that's the summary of um, tongues in the, in the body, in the church. All right. So what about corporate singing in the spirit? Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to kind of hit a highlight or two here to talk about it. Ooh, much more authoritative now. Anyway, there we go. That was a joke. That was, anyway. I think Michael Ramson said this. Michael Ramson's a uh, guy uh, I listen to a fair amount, and he's from the U.K., and he you think I talk fast, man, he talks so fast. And he used to say this. He says, it's okay that I'm talking fast. Why? Because right now they're recording this. And you can get the recording. And after you get the recording, you can play it back. And when you play it back, it'll be, my, my voice will be much more, it'll be, my voice will be much deeper and therefore much more authoritative. So it's just fun. <clears throat> All right. What about corporate singing in the spirit? So what are some of the principles we took from our study? What did we take? Don't do something in a public setting where unbelievers may be... First of all, does anyone not know what singing in the Spirit is? I want to hear if anybody's not familiar with it. All right. So, um, uh, there, um, singing in the Spirit, how do I describe it? So, in a time of worship, there's, there's times of worship when, when we may put, put a song up there and we're singing together and we're worship, we're singing the words that are on the page. There are also times when we will come into contemplative worship where someone's just playing music and we're just allowing our spirit to worship. It's just between us and God while that music is playing. And there, there are times and places that, that I've participated in and been in 
where someone will just be singing, just start to sing just between them and God right there. Um, and just, just begin to have a beautiful melody that they're just worshiping God while other people are worshiping. And different ones will begin to sing. And it's, it's absolutely incredible because you'll hear all these different harmonies and different melodies that are going on that begin to blend. And some people will participate in that by singing in tongues while they're doing it. And they'll begin to worship as they're singing in tongues as they're doing it. This is, this is when it's done in a corporate setting. And, of course, you could do the same thing uh, privately. You could be, just be, I've done this. I've had, you know, just pull my guitar out and just start playing and just start playing music and i'm just worshiping and i'm and i'm just having an amazing time i might sing a song first and then i'll just just start singing words as they're coming to my mind and then i might just start singing in the spirit and just praising god in the spirit it's just a worshipful experience that's singing spirit well is that appropriate to do in a corporate setting okay there are some traditions that do it quite a bit in a corporate setting would that be appropriate uh, way of doing it. That's the question that we're asking here. Well, what are the principles that we learn? Don't do something in a public setting where unbelievers may be present that could be confusing or push them away. That's one of the things we learn, right? We don't want to confuse or push unbelievers away. We want unbelievers to come in and and uh, it's not about making them comfortable. It's about allowing them to hear the truth in a way they know they are loved. Okay? It's about loving them, know they are loved, and making them, uh, um, put, creating an environment where they are edified and built up, not confused and, and, and fearful. Does that make sense? All right. So it's not about making someone uncomfortable, but my goal, isn't, my, my goal is the gospel. And how many know that the gospel confronts us? Or is that just me the gospel confronts? <laughs> Maybe I need more help than everybody else. All right. Understand the purpose of gathering and who's present. So that's the first principle. Who's with us when we're doing this? And why are we doing this? Why are we meeting? So use wisdom and the scriptures as your guide. Use the text. Use wisdom. Number two. I mean, and, and quite frankly, that's it. I, that's all I wanted. I mean, there, he's got like a whole section on it. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. That's the bottom line. You know, some people say it's inappropriate. Some people say it's appropriate. My thing is, is why are we gathered? If I'm gathered with other believers and we're having a worship time and, and this begins to happen spontaneously, I, I've seen incredibly beautiful moments. But if I got an unbeliever who's in there, doesn't have any clue what's going on, and it's going to cause them to feel, no, 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 you should, no, don't do that. So why are we gathered? There's all kinds of reasons we gather. And so allow, use wisdom, uh, put others first. Follow the principles of Scripture. All right. And we could talk more about that later, but I, I just, I wanted to get here um, where we get to Dr. Storm's testimony. And we're going to close out this chapter with his testimony. This is his personal testimony, um, and, uh, which I thought would be a really beautiful way to kind of end um, uh, this section this, that we've been studying. All right. So, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading here right from the text, so all the me, me's, my's, and I's is Dr. Storm speaking. Okay, so I'm going to speak in first person for him. I'm just quoting from him. So this is what he says. He says, my first encounter with the gifts of the Spirit came when I was 19 years old. And this was in the summer of 1970. I was living in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and I was serving with Campus Crusade for Christ. I was on an evangelistic project. A friend of mine invited me to a meeting at um, invited me to a meeting at which Harold Bredesen, yeah, Harold Bredesen, one of the early leaders of the charismatic movement, was scheduled to speak. Now, what Bredesen said that night sparked in me a desire for this gift. I began to pray earnestly. To God, that if the gift was real and in accordance with his will, he would give it to me. 
Now, my determination was so intense that for several weeks I spent each night in a secluded area near my fraternity house at the University of Oklahoma, pleading with God for some indication of his will for me concerning this gift. One night, quite without warning, my prayer in English was interrupted by words of uncertain sound and form. I distinctly remember a somewhat detached sensation as if I were separated, if I were separated from the one speaking. I had never experienced anything remotely similar to that in all my life. I kept thinking to myself, Sam, what are you saying? Are you speaking in tongues? I was both frightened and exhilarated. The experience lasted only a couple of minutes, but I felt closer to God and he, and, uh, and he to me than ever before. I returned to my fraternity house filled with excitement and called a friend to tell him what had happened. Thirty minutes later, I sat down in his car and he said, and, and, and said, you'll never guess what happened to me tonight. You spoke in tongues, didn't you? He asked, almost deadpan. Yes, it was great. But I don't understand what it means. This person cared deeply for me and had no intention of offending me or obstructing my Christian growth. But what he said next affected me for years to come. I'm going to interrupt for one second here. Guys, you don't think your words matter. They do. They matter to the person at the checkout counter. They matter to the salesman who calls you on the phone. They matter to the, the casual person you meet on the street. They matter to the person in the grocery store. They matter to the people you bank with. They matter to your family members. They matter to your neighbors. They matter to your family, to, to your extended family. They, they matter at work. Your words matter. This guy didn't even attend. Sam, you realize, don't you? That if people find out about this, you'll likely be excluded from any leadership position on campus. And I hate to say it, but a lot of people think you're demonized. Ouch. I was crushed. I remember free, feebly and with more than a little fear trying to speak in tongues the next night, but nothing happened. Not wanting to forfeit my position in the ministry on campus, I concluded that it must have been something other than the Holy Spirit. I explained it away as a momentary emotional outburst that I'd be better off forgetting and not mentioning to anyone else. I never spoke of the incident or spoke in tongues again for 20 years. November 1990, I was with Jack Deere in New Orleans at a theology conference. I shared with him what had happened back in the fall of 1970. He then reminded me of something the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy. He said this, this is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Jack then laid hands on me and asked the Lord to kindle afresh in me this gift he had bestowed on me so many years before. Guys, I'm going to stop right here and interject this. We absolutely need to stir up the gift of God in one another. We need to stir up the gift of God in one another. We need to stir it up in ourselves. 
and we need to stir it up in one another. What does it do? It spurs us on to love and good works, the writer of Hebrews says. It spurs us on to love and good works. This verse in 2 Timothy is important. As I indicated earlier in this book, it tells us that one may receive a spiritual gift only to neglect and ignore it. The imagery Paul uses is helpful. He describes a spiritual gift in terms of a flame that needs to be continually fanned. Stir up. Fan it. Fan it. Has anybody ever built a fire? Okay. Anybody built a little and you don't fan it? What happens? It goes away. When you get that little spark going and you need a fire, what are you doing? You're, you're blowing on it. If, you, if you're not going to eat until that fire lights, you're fanning in as much as you can possibly fan it. If it is not understood and nurtured and utilized in the way God intended, the once brightly burning flame can be reduced to a smoldering ember. You know one of the fastest ways to reduce a, a, something on fire to a smoldering ember? It's very simple. Okay, here's an experiment. Go to a fire. Okay, or get a rip-roaring fire. I mean a hot fire. Take a poker. Take one coal. And pop it out and pull it aside. How many people would pick that coal up right after you pop it out? Oh. So it looks like it doesn't need the fire. At first. Leave it there for a while. Outside of the fire, away from the flame, what happens? It slowly dies until it goes cold and smoke comes off of it. You want to hear what's cool? All you got to do is take and pop it back in. Lights right back up. It doesn't need a whole, you know, you know, I'm sorry I didn't come to all the, you know, it just jumps in with the rest and it's lit back up like it was never out. If it is not understood and nurtured and utilized in the way God intended, the once burning, brightly, the, the once brightly burning flame can be reduced to a smoldering ember. Take whatever steps you must. Let me say that again. Take Whatever steps you must, what is standing between you and all that God has for you? Study, pray, seek God's face, put it into practice, but by all means, stoke the fire until that gift returns to its original intensity. What's standing between you and the intensity God wants to build in your life? I took Paul's advice to Timothy and applied it to my own case. Every day, if only for a few minutes, I prayed that God would renew what he had given me. But I had quenched. I prayed that if it were his will, I would once more be able to pray in the Spirit, to speak that heavenly language that would praise and thank and bless him. I didn't wait for some sort of divine seizure, but in faith began simply to speak forth the syllables and words that he brought to mind. Some 22 years have passed now since God renewed his precious gift in my life. Praying in the Spirit is by no means the most important gift. Neither is it a sign of, of a spirituality or a maturity greater than that of those who do not have this gift. Hugely important. That's what Paul was dealing with. But if no less a man than the Apostle Paul can say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all, who am I to despise 
this blessed gift of God. Oops, I guess I went faster. There we go. Amen? And with that, we'll end the chapter right there. Let's close out in prayer. Um, And then after we close out in prayer, I'm closing out in prayer for the sake of those who are listening online. We'll, uh, and here we'll have some time of Q&A and, um, and, and hopefully some time to, to pray uh, a little bit together. So uh, let me close out in prayer for the sake of those who are listening in, and uh, we'll get into this. So let me close, before we close in prayer, just to say this. I, I hope as we've studied through this, you, we've, we've sought to see what is the Bible telling us about this gift. Um, and what is the Spirit speaking to us about what we're hearing the Bible telling us? And may we hunger and thirst for what it is God desires to give to us. Lord, we pray that very thing. I pray right now, by the light and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you stir up the gift of God that is in each one of us in this room. Stir us up to hunger. Stir us up to thirst. Stir us up to desire. Earnestly desire your gifts. And Father, most of all, that we would do it in a spirit of love. To, for the common good, for the building up of the body, to edify one another. And that we would not look on what you would desire to give us as something weird and strange and other, but that we would see the beauty of what you desire to do into and through us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, so let me know when we're turned off, and then we'll have some time.